0: Traeger Method Podcast, 73 is the episode number. Hello and welcome. Thank you for listening. If you're returning, if you're new, thank you. I am your host, Jason Traeger. Got the microphone in front of my face, headphones over the ears, Buddha seated to the right of my laptop, Pellegrino water, empty, actually it's empty, cup of water. I guess you'd say glass of water notebook in front of me. There's a checkbook. My friend Michelle Noel's name written next to her phone number. Got a copy of Smegma's... Di- Smeg- Smegma dives headfirst into punk rock, 1978, 1979. I got the CD of that sent to me by Jackie, previous Traeger Method guest, original Oblivia on Instagram. Listen back to that episode with her talking about early Portland. She sent me this while back. I haven't talked about it yet on the pod, but talking about it right now, aren't I? It's awesome document. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jackie, for sending that my way. So cool. Got a great package too. some flyers. Looks good. Nice gatefold. Really cool. Smegma dives head first. It's great. Into punk rock, 1978, 1979. On the Crim Cram label. Jerry A. Was in Smegma around this time. Been doing a little studying up on Portland punk recently. Reading the Jerry A. From Poison Idea, of course. His three-part bio- autobiography. I'm about halfway through the first volume and it is a compulsive read. It's a real page turner, man. I was I, I, I started reading thinking I'll read it for 15 minutes before I go to bed. I was awake for two hours. Couldn't put it down. I was just about to say, even if you don't like punk or care about it, you, this you would enjoy this book. But then I thought like realistically, I mean really, how many people are listening to this podcast who don't at least have some interest? and fascination with punk. Some expertise, probably. Yeah. You'll like the books. Black Heart Fades Blue. I had to get up to remember the title. It's a great name, Black Heart Fades Blue. That's the name of the three-book series by Jerry A. He's not the guest today. You were probably aware of that because of the uh, name on the podcast episode you just got in your feed. I would love to have Jerry A. of Poison Idea on the pod in the future, and I have every intention of doing so, but I'm not going to do so until I've read the books. You know, that'd be kind of ridiculous, asking him, you know, so how did you get into punk? Read the book. What was it like for you growing up? You better read the book. No, Well, I'll read the books, and then I will try to talk to Jerry. <clears throat> My guest today is Gabe Dinger stand-up comedian today. He has punk background, as you'll hear about. We talk about the 90s Portland punk with J- with a Jabe. With Jabe. No, it's Gabe. Gabe Dinger. It's funny, Gabe tours with Ron Funches, another Portland comic who started in Salem, Portland area, and has gone on to bigger things. Both of them are in Los Angeles now. But aren't those two great comedy names? Funches. Ron Funches, fun. Gabe Dinger, dingalingalinger. They're not funny names, but they are bright names. Fun-sounding names. These are guys who are good. You don't picture a serial killer named Gabe Dinger, you know? Or maybe you do, actually. Whatever the case, Gabe's not a serial killer. He's a good friend of mine. Very, very funny. Great person, great comic. I mean, he is a serial killer of crowds. I have witnessed him slay entire rooms many times, have had that privilege. We talk about his growing up in Portland, punk times, his life in comedy. It's fun. I'll talk more about him right before I introduce um, our conversation. What was I doing? I was I was listing everything on on the desk in front of me. We got a mechanical pencil. We got a ballpoint pen. I think I mentioned them. There's a little tripod thing with adjustable uh, legs, meant to hold a phone to film. Like as though I do that. Have you ever seen my face? Well, maybe you have, but the amount of times I've shot my you know taken a video of myself performing or something is not common. I wish I had more of that in me. for some, you know, would help with marketing, right? Maybe I should do, I had that thought not that long ago uh, that I should do what the opposite of what I want to do, you know, what I'm inclined to do. Make a bunch of videos. Get out there talking about stuff. Share things and ideas with your face. Sing songs with it. Then I'm like, or not. Another thing I have on my desk, I'm just being f- full transparency. You know, like that thing, like I corrected when I said it was a cup of water. You know, you can't see it, right? There's no audio or video here, to, but I wanted to be straight with you. It's a glass. I have Chris Sutton's, Christopher Sutton's selected songs You Brought Me Back from the Dead, cassette recently released on Antiquated Future Records. It's awesome. You can also hear it on Spotify, other places. I had a conversation with Chris. I've got a few conversations already in the can. I'm not just flying by the seat of my pants. I'm back and I'm getting a backlog of great conversations. I talked to Chris. That's coming up. I think it'll be next episode. I don't usually announce ahead of time who's coming up. Maybe I'll start doing that. Well, I just did it, so I guess I am starting that. We'll see if it's a pattern. We've got another really great conversation to share with you. I'm not going to talk about that one right now, though. Stay focused. This uh, compilation by, from of Chris of all this work. He's, he's been in so many bands. This is stuff that just kind of collected on the hard drives for between 1998 and 2019. Check it out. Buy a copy. Bandcamp, probably, I'm imagining. I'll find the links. They'll be in the show notes, along with all the show notes and links pertaining to this episode. What else I got on the desk? A lamp. A Focusrite digital audio interface. A monitor screen I haven't turned on in months. Monitor speakers, two of those. Why am I listing all the things on my desk? No reason beyond that it feels good. It feels good to check in with your immediate reality, your, your the felt presence of immediate surroundings. It's grounding. My friend Julia, she told me once she said if you're stressed out what you got to do if or if you're having a real anxiety filled moment notice seven things. And and she said I don't know why she said seven but you know just a, that was what she said notice seven things in your surrounding and name them. There's the lamp, there's the bottle, there's the Buddha, there's the tape, there's the monitors. There's the monitor. There's a glass of water. Is that seven? Something about that, she said, breaks the, the anxiety spiral. And look at them. Think about them. Take them in. There's the glass. There's the. No, I'm not feeling anxious. I just wanted to share that tactic. It has worked for me, in the past, in those moments. Maybe you might need it sometime. And breathe. Always breathe. (sighs) Snowed this morning in Portland. I'm looking forward to spring. This is the time where you go, come on. Really? Let's just little bit of, yeah, let's get some sun in here. Warm things up a bit. I want to see some bright green new leaves pretty soon. Looking forward to it at this point. This would be the time to go somewhere sunny this time of year in Portland. Plan, you put that on the calendar a couple months before this. Plan for your sunshine in March. We were going to go away to the coast for my mom's 80th birthday. But it snowed a ton right before that, and then it looked like we were going to have more snow. You, you guys probably heard about that. We had the biggest snowfall in a single 24-hour period here in Portland since, like, the 40s, I think. Totally unexpected. We were supposed to get a dusting, and then we get this boom. And then it was all this, you know, reports about, well, it looks like it's going to happen again on Saturday and this and that. And so we canceled the trip. And then what do you know? It was totally fine. We could have gone. We'll go at some other point. It's it's fine. We had a good time on the day, anyways, and around it, so. And it was also challenging. My stepdad died, you know, it's my mom's first birthday after that. It's not, you know, stuff's not if I just if I just left it at it was fun. That would not be honest. That would not be Traeger method. Because the fact is it's challenging. There's grieving going on. I felt it. I'm feeling it. Mom's feeling it. We're all feeling it. So my stepsister and my niece, she's 14. Got to hear about her world. Oh my God. I don't have kids if you haven't picked up on it. It's not that I'm not mentioning them. (laughs) I don't have any. So that's why you've never heard about them. Wouldn't that be funny if episode 73, I just suddenly... So my son Braden... (laughs) What you have a Brayden was Jaden and Brayden. Those are my two sons. I'm not just saying my own name with a speech impediment. that would be a weird speech impediment. Jaden. What's your name? Jaden Traeger. (laughs) But I'm actually meaning to say Jason. Okay. Um, Enough of that. Yeah, it was cool. It's funny. We watched The Shining. Did I talk about this on the podcast? No, I haven't done a podcast since Pete's. Right? Okay, Jesus. What? Did I, when did I? I felt like I talked about this. Oh, I think I talked about it with Gabe Dinger. Yeah. So I'm thinking about when I edited edited this conversation. Gabe, yes, yeah, so Gabe and I talk about this. And in, in the, I am previewing now the episode. In it, I tell Gabe about watching The Shining with my niece, who loves horror films. And she reviewed The Shining as saying, just a dude yelling with music. That was her review. She didn't like it. She's like, not nearly as good as Midsommar. Which, you know, whatever. Art is subjective. She likes 2001, which I find surprising. She thought The Shining would probably be really good because 2001 was so good, a space odyssey. Did I ever tell you about this time I missed Christmas while I stayed home by myself? Speaking of snow, it's like the biggest snowstorm for this region, weeks of snow. I don't know what year this was, 2008 maybe? The snow, it was Christmas Day. The city was as shut down as it could possibly be. Nobody could leave. I couldn't leave. I was stuck in town. Couldn't drive anywhere. So on Christmas, I took mushrooms in the morning and then watched 2001, A Space Odyssey. Just ended w- it weeping, you know, just as the baby, the music, unbelievable. Walked down to my painting studio through the snow, the quietest ever. The sky just was like this dark, almost greenish gray, with snow, just sheets of snow, just the whole, like there was almost, you know, if you look through the air, it was almost more snow than space between flakes. You know what I mean? Incredible. I was also shrooming, so. But yeah, just walking around, absolute, no footprints. Nobody was out. It was like my footprints exclusively in the snow. And it was so quiet, that kind of acoustical thing that happens with snow. You could hear the snowflakes landing. My mom watched 2001 with me in utero. I was, I was born right around, just, a, just after its release. And she, it was one of the last things she did before she had me out in the world. And she, she was completely blown away by it. She said she left the theater in 1968 when it was released in tears she said dad did not like it he was like she didn't get it and the other friends they were with were like nope it's weird boring takes too long she was like really really but i can i can see that that's not like it's not like i'm saying dad was a dork because of that it's like yeah it's a it's a probably a pretty surprising movie but back then still surprising I think, and this is crazy, that Stanley Kubrick's the most underrated mu- filmmaker of all time. Notice that on YouTube comments. I-, I watch a lot of YouTube videos. You ever notice that? That's like one of the comments you always see, no matter who it is. I John Bonham video, it'll be like, I think John Bonham's the most underrated drummer of all time. It's like, no, he's not. He's just not being talked about all the time by everyone because he died 45 years ago or whatever. Come on, it's okay, you're just old. But uh, yeah, the other one, when you watch, I you mean, know, I watch a lot of old music. I'm a late middle age guy or whatever, you know, so I watch a lot of classic stuff. And uh, not, well, it doesn't even have to be classic, I'm more than 10 years old. There will always be a comment under it. This is when music was good. Especially if it's any old rock music or soul or something, there's always a comment, always several that say something like, or with this tone, you know, like this Hey, kids, does the music you're seeing on the little screen disturb you? Does it scare you somehow? Do you find it disorienting and confusing? Do you feel inadequate? in the face of the performance you have witnessed. Don't be scared. Just because the thing you are witnessing is unfamiliar does not mean it will hurt you. Let me explain to you what you are witnessing. It's a thing called talent. Musicians used to have to have it in order to get big, unlike today with people like Justin Bieber who you no doubt love, you idiot. Like, why is a Justin Bieber fan watching a Black Oak, Arkansas video and reading the comments, you know? And also, why always Justin Bieber? He's got some talent, I'd imagine. That's me riffing, folks. This entire, I'm just gonna throw this out there. This is a comedy-centric podcast. We got Gabe Dinger. That was me riffing. Coming up with material, more so than delivering material. That's how material is often written on stage, through free-flowing talking. If you had laughed at any point, if I was doing that set live and you had laughed at any point, I would have noted that. That's how comedy is written, in collaboration with the crowds. And also getting input from all your comedy friends, you know, your cohort People you respect, who have good taste, who are funny, get feedback from them each night, which is also amazing. Having a friend like Gabe, who I'm so happy to talk to on this episode. All right, that's a good intro. I like it. I'm going to roll with it. Thank you so much for listening. Support the podcast, Patreon, Traeger Method. I, I have every intention of becoming more active with that thing and making it an exciting uh, place. Space, I guess you'd call it an exciting space. Let's see if I act on that intention. All right. You can also anchor app if you'd like. And if you're already a supporter, thank you so much. It means a lot to me, the pod, and our listeners. And if you're listening, thank you for listening. Please tell a friend. That is the best form of promotion for this kind of niche indie podcast. Okay, please enjoy this conversation with my dear friend, stand-up comedian, and Portland punk, Gabe Ding.
1: Gabe. Jason, so good to see you, buddy.
0: So good to see you, too. You're looking well.
1: Yeah, you're looking well. I mean, you look exactly the same as the last time I saw you.
0: <laughs> Probably wearing the same clothes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sleeping in a hyperbolic chamber.
0: Yep. So you're in Los Angeles now. How's life going?
1: Uh, Studio City. So I'm in the valley. Um, it's good. You know, it, it's just starting to not be weird from the pandemic. So, you know, it's it's starting to feel alive again
0: good i see a, How lot about, of, uh, a lot of comic books behind you
1: oh these uh <laughs> yeah when I they're they're my investment for the future it's uh yeah i love i love comics
0: i see an fyp album
1: oh uh oh this, this i just recently it's a first pressing of finish your popcorn but it is still sealed baby whoa nice and uh you know i tried with records i was like don't make it like comic books where you have to get like every variant but i saw this and i was like i just have to gotta have have it. it
0: so where did you grow up gabe did you were you born and raised portland
1: born and raised portland
0: what kind of situation growing up
1: Uh, you know, lower middle class. Um, my parents got divorced when I was young. So it was a lot of like my mom kind of picking herself back up and, and taking care of me. Um, he was definitely in the picture, but you know, she was the, the caretaker. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so Portland, um, deep Southeast, I grew up, um, on like 130th and division um David Douglas. So yeah, that was that was a. I got to see Portland turn into Portland.
0: <laughs> Portland turned from Portland into Portland. Yeah, the yeah. Portland, it, the Portland of your youth yeah. is a little different than the Portland of today, isn't it?
1: Oh, totally, totally. I mean, Portland was just a place you stopped in between San Francisco and Seattle. It was. I, I used to always say like Portland was like the middle child of the West Coast, like. <laughs> san francisco was so cool in the 60s seattle was cool in the 90s and portland was just like we'll pump your gas
0: (laughs) yeah so would um what when did you like discover punk and what what was portland the punk world that you came into what what era was that
1: yeah, so I um, I got into punk. Um, you know, I was like skateboarding and stuff. And like the like the sixth grade was when I started skating. And uh, at that time, like Green Day and The Offspring had just broken really big. Um, so I was a big Green Day fan. And um, in the seventh grade, when all the elementary schools kind of emerged together, uh, I found the other skateboard kids. And I went up to them and I was like, hey, I I got a skateboard. I want to be friends. What kind of music do you listen to? And they're like, oh, punk rock. And I was like, oh, like Green Day and Offspring. And they just laughed. (laughs) They're like, no, man, we listen to like Seven Seconds and DRI and AFI. And I was like, I just wrote those, like (laughs) kept repeating those names in my head. And uh, this was probably 96 Yeah, that sounds 1996. Um, So I went to a Sam Goody at Mall 205 (laughs) and I asked the clerk, you know, I like looked around. I found DRI thrash zone, seven seconds, the crew, and I couldn't find AFI. And so I went to the clerk and I said, hey, do you guys have AFI? And he goes, no, but if you're into Bay Area punk, you should check out the Dead Kennedys. So I went and I got uh, I ended up buying fresh fruit for Rotting Vegetables. That was my first. Yeah. Dead Kennedy album. So I went home and uh, Thrash Zone was the first one I listened to because it had like a comic book looking cover. And so as a comic book fan, I was like, yeah. (laughs) Um, But, you know, by 1996, like especially like later DRI stuff sounded like like early Metallica and like, it sounded like popular music uh, of the time. Um, So it it was good. I enjoyed it, but it it sounded very, you know, just what was popular at the time. Um, But then when I put on seven seconds, the crew, that was the one where I was like, Oh, this is something different this is something. And I sat there with the lyric sheet and listened to the songs over and over again. And then dead Kennedy's like that was chemical warfare. Like they, they take their instruments and it sounds like death, you know, (laughs) that, that interlude they do. And it, it was just, you know, at that time I was like a little church going, like, you know, I was just discovering rebellion and it was all, it was amazing to me. So I, I fell in love with it through the skate kids. Um, but then, uh, there was a local punk band berserk. Um, and they went to my high school, like my friend, Tom, his brother was the guitar player in that band. And, uh, we would like listen to them on cassette. And there was like one time we skated while they were practicing and stuff, but it, it was kind of, it, it didn't really, it, it was just fine um but they they were doing a show with fyp one night at uh stage four and where was stage four stage four was on pine street um it's funny it's just like lofts now um i'd have to google it to because i actually for my going away show i tried to rent the space uh but the guy was like no we we do like weddings and shit here Mm. But, yeah, it, it, and it was it was on Pine Street. It was right by, there's, like, an army surplus store kind of right around the corner from it, kind of that area. I don't yeah. remember the street numbers anymore, but. Um, and it was on the second level of this building, and there was, like, the area where the show would happen, and then, like, a little lounge where you could, like, smoke cigarettes, and people would, like, toss booze up from, from the street mm-hmm. to the window. You know, it, you know, it, it just felt... I was, I was 13. I was, it it was scary. It was exciting. And then, you know, Berserk went on and it was, I mean, that show was really like, when I was like, man, I want to get on a stage somehow, some way the stage was, you know, four inches off the floor (laughs) and, uh, and Berserk just fucking, I I couldn't believe it. I was like, they're, you know, a few years older than me like how how were they able to be this amazing um and then FYP came on and and Todd the lead singer he was like uh, these lights are too bright turn them down so the room got like almost pitch black dark which made it even scarier and and it was it was amazing it was amazing seeing people just being like no I want to be in a band I want to do a show and and so that was once I saw that, like I bought, about bought my first seven inch that night. I bought a, a sampler from Recess Records, and that that kind of became my gauge of of my taste in music.
0: Yeah, you were, uh, and, and
1: I'm so thankful for it because then you know, like 1999 rolls around, and um, it was a had time for for music you know it was a lot of the new metal and stuff and and i'm sitting here listening to like you know recess like quincy punks and 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 pud and beating you know like i was just like i'm so glad in retrospect that i i got to miss all of the the new metal phase because i had this cool like underground thing that felt like it was mine
0: right it's so funny that that new metal stuff now like all teenagers who are like 13, 14, they love that shit. They like my little niece. She drives anytime I see her, she's got like a slipknot shirt on and like big, bag, <laughs> big, baggy Jenko type jeans. And I'm like, I'm like, that's the stuff.
1: It's so wild, like, you know, getting to that age where you're watching the things that were kind of popular and almost like cheesy when yeah. you were growing up become a thing again. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's it just cycles. So yeah. what other so what other shows did you did you go to a bunch of shows after that?
1: I did. Yeah, it, and it was pretty much like anything Berserk was on. I was like yeah. I will I will save my lunch money and <laughs> and I will go. Um but also like I just enjoyed Stage 4. Like it was just kind of a fun venue. Um like I I went to a, it was a old school night. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to old school night. And it was scary. You know, I was a little kid and it was a bunch of grown men. And so the whole night there was this one guy that like really kept, I feel like he was like targeting me in the pit. He was like, you're little, you don't belong here. I'm going to teach you a lesson. And so finally I got to where I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dance anymore. I'm just going to go into the lounge area. I'm going to listen to the music and, and wait for my mom to pick me up. <laughs> and uh, one of the last bands played Young Until I Die from Seven Seconds, and I was like, all right, I got to go in for this. And as soon as that guy saw me, he beelined in the pit, punched me right in the face, punching my braces through my bottom lip.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And I had to rip it out and a little bit of blood like spattered on my shirt. I was wearing a light colored shirt and uh, <laughs> my mom, she comes and picks me up after the show and she was like, Oh my God, what happened? And I was like, the best night of my life. <laughs> it was just so much fun. Um, but yeah, so I saw, I saw uh, berserk with um, one of my few La Luna shows was berserk with Slater Kenny. I saw that show berserk with earth crisis which was terrifying. What was that scene Uh, like? It it was weird. So like when I got into punk, I was, I was straight edge. Um, I was coming out of going to church all the time. So straight edge was like really comfortable to me. It was like, Oh, I can rebel and be against the system, but I don't have to commit to like life changing, you know, (laughs) I don't have to do heroin like Sid Vicious to be cool. (laughs) Um, So I actually was a fan of Earth Crisis at the time. Um, I had since, like, lost my edge and was a bit of a partier. And at the time, one of my favorite things to do was to go to, like, keggers and stuff wearing straight-edge bands shirts. I just thought it was funny. Yeah. And so I was walking up to the Earth Crisis show in my Minor Threat shirt. I still have the shirt um Smoking a cigarette, and a buddy of mine ran up and he goes, Put that out. Like, these guys are no fucking joke. <laughs> and it was the first time, like, you know, we had a few straight edge guys in Portland. Like, there was one guy who used to walk around with a gas mask at shows to let us know that, like, <laughs> I don't want your secondhand smoke. um That's,
0: but there, that's hardcore straight edge.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that was about, like, there were, there just wasn't enough straight edge and not like there were just so few punks that it's like, look, we can't divide ourselves. Yeah. Like let's just be friends. But this show, like, dudes had straight edge tattoos and and it felt like the way my memory has it now is it, it felt like how movies portray like Jim Crow concerts. Like there was a little aisle between the like hardcore straight edge dudes and the like just people there for for the show. Um, so it was uncomfortable it was tense yeah what was the Um, scene like was
0: the was like the skinhead thing important still going at that time like
1: yeah i mean they would they would pop up um it was funny mostly at the paris theater when when the paris was doing uh shows still um like i remember and it was always the same thing like they would come they wanted to be noticed like they would come they would make a scene they would get kicked out and it really felt like that was was all they were looking for <laughs> um but like there was this one time at the Paris this group of, of skinheads came in and they were trying to start fights and no one was was getting into it my buddy Justin the guy one of the guys punched him in the face and he was just like all right and walked away um so no one was giving them the time of day and then one of them punched a girl in the face and the bass player of the band threw down his guitar, jumped over like three rows of people and started beating the shit out of the guy. The bouncers finally kicked him out. Dude gets back on stage and he goes, Hey, you three, you came in with him. Give me a fucking excuse. And they, you know, everyone clad and they just walked away, but it wasn't, it just felt like they were just trying to get attention and there were definitely times where I felt like you know if we just didn't feed their flame, they would probably just go somewhere else, which I, I think they did with like metal and you know yeah and all that yeah. Uh, but him. yeah, they were they were definitely around. They were definitely a problem. And and you know, Berserk had had two ladies in the band, so there were definitely people who came. But but they weren't like. You know, just little tussles with with the people who would actually get into it with them.
0: Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you missed the bad era.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I forget now the, the name of that podcast that, that I got turned on from you, but that informing the wall. Uh, oh, they yeah, talk about,
0: it, it It did happen here.
1: And yeah, it did happen here. Uh, that was fantastic. and And the wall was still something that was formed. When I was around, I just didn't know where it was from. I I just thought it was.
0: was Tell people what the wall was.
1: So basically when the like skinheads would come in and and start getting rowdy, you would make a wall of people kind of locking arms or, you know, putting your arms around shoulders and you would push them out the door. You know, it, it probably only happened like twice um, but they would definitely be around, um, a lot of them would be outside of the venue, yeah. you know, just kind of waiting to see again, who would, who would pay attention to them. But, you know, that's the odd thing with being a skinhead in Portland Portland's like a lot of white people, like you're going to be <laughs> waiting a while. <laughs>
0: um, but, so, so you're, so you, so you were going to shows Were you ever interested in being in a band. I mean, did you ever start playing an instrument?
1: That was so that was the first thing, like when I was seeing Berserk, like, you know, Berserk would they would do shows in town during the school year. And then during summer break, they would go on tour with like FYP and and other recess bands. And so that was my first like, you know, Portland at the time was a place you were born in, lived in and, and died in. You know, my my parents lived five miles away from where they grew up. Um, so berserk was like the first time where i was like oh there's there's a world out there and so i i wanted to be in a band um but you know this was 1998 1999 again so there weren't a lot of punks my age left like a lot of my friends who were into punk got into metal or going to raves so people didn't the best you could find was like a like a sublime-esque type band. <laughs> like that was the closest to punk you could get. Um, and so I got into a band and, and I made like a hard fast. I was like, no drop D. Like we can only do power chords, no drop. I don't want to be a y sounding band at all. Like growing up in the Limp Biscuit era just really <laughs> turned me off to like anything, like even older metal stuff. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I would rather listen to R.E.M. Yeah, so I was in a band and we did a couple of like parties, but that was all that really did. did uh, you play? The only uh, I played guitar. The only the only time I ever got paid to be on stage as a musician was um, there was this guy Earl who had a band Earl and the Reggae All Stars, and uh, my buddy played trombone for him. And one night, their guitar player just flaked out. And I used to carry my guitar and an amp in my trunk just in case. <laughs> and, and it, it totally, ha- he was like, come up here. We need a guitar player. So I brought my amp, I set it all up. And he was like, uh, what do you know how to play? And I go, uh, Bob Marley, could you be loved? And so he starts playing it and I I play it. And like, I, you know, I did a, a proficient job, uh, but I was not a good guitar player. Like that was it. That was all I had for reggae. So yeah, because my roommate made me learn it because he was trying to do a a trombone part to it. So he, he taught the chords. Uh, So for the rest of the show, I just turned the volume down on my guitar and kind of just did the motions that, that I was actually playing. And the whole time I was like, Oh, I feel like shit. I feel so stupid. Why did I do this? And afterwards Earl goes, oh man by the way earl was a guy from seattle with a jamaican accent
0: yeah okay (laughs) Uh,
1: so just to give you an idea he was notorious for writing checks that would bounce Mm -hmm. Uh, but he was like oh man you were fucking amazing tell you what if you want to be in this band i'll kick that other guy out and you're our new guitar player and i was like uh no man I'm, i'm in another band but it was cool thanks for letting me jam.
0: I mean, so, you're, luck, yeah. you're lucky it was a reggae band that pulled you up. It's kind of like one of the genres of music where guitar, guitar is not, like, the main instrument. Like, you couldn't have faked it as well if you were the bassist.
1: Right, yeah. <laughs> or the keyboard player. Like, yeah, the drummer. Thank Jaw for that keyboard player, because that, that is who did all of, of what I was supposed to be doing.
0: All praises to Ja.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and
0: they paid uh, you
1: and and i just hit a point with the guitar like i just you know i was okay at the beginning but i'm just not my timing is off i'm not i'm not great at it so yeah i just i just knew i wanted to be on stage i just didn't know in in what capacity
0: how did you come to do stand-up
1: so a friend of mine in high school, her parents sold weed to a, a Portland comic at the time. And so when we turned 21, I was like, oh, I've known this guy for years. Like, I want to see you do stand up. And so uh, he invited us to a show and and he was great. It was it was amazing. I had never seen live comedy before. It was it, it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Who was it? And Ron Osborne
0: oh Ron Osborne yeah
1: yeah yeah Ron Osborne so I I thought he was amazing he was like oh I know the club owner uh anytime you want to come back you can come for free I was like I'm coming next week I love this um and so what I went year was next- this this would have been let's see let's do a little bit of math here I was born in 83 93 2003 2004 so I went back the next week and I thought the headliner was good, but I, I just thought he wasn't being his true self, you know, as a an inebriated 21-year-old uh, <laughs> would think. So I decided I was going to help him through his set, and I started heckling. Uh, I heckled him through his entire set, and Jason, I got a couple of laughs. <laughs> I got a couple of laughs. Uh, so much so that after the show, like... I went up and introduced myself. I was like, I'm that fellow that was heckling you. And he goes, hey, you think you're so funny? They do an open mic here every Sunday. Now, he was trying to be snarky. But to a drunk 21-year-old Gabe Dinger, I heard, kid, you got it. You need to come here. <laughs> Sunday. You need to hone that crap. You've got what uh, it takes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Did you
0: say this was yeah. at Harvey's?
1: No, this was uh, a place called Comedy Club Westside. It was actually in Beaverton. You know, this was before... Harvey's certainly was around, um, but, you know, this was when Portland did not have much as far as comedy.
0: Who were the comics? Susan Rice, Ron Osborne?
1: Susan, Ron Osborne, Art Krug, Dwight Slade. Those would have been the... Lloyd J. Phillips, B.J. Johnson. Those were like the the big headliners but then like richard bain was already around at that point uh richie stratton um nathan brandon brandon started shortly thereafter or maybe even a little bit before me um so there was a handful of of you know what would be the uh up and comers but yeah so so i heckled and and i took two weeks planning i bought uh Judy Gold's book, The Comedy Bible on how to create a set. And uh did a lot of the stuff she recommended, and and I did my first set. How did it go? And it wasn't it was it was for a first set, like it was good. Uh it was good enough to where like the other comics were like, Hey, there's an open mic on Monday here and at Tuesday. Like I got the list of of the local mics at the time. Which at the time were like, you know, seven people on the list. Like it was, they were tiny. Yeah.
0: Pre-internet I yeah mean, pre internet comedy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Pre
0: YouTube, you know.
1: Oh, it, I mean, I didn't get a MySpace account until I started doing stand up. You know, like there was just, there just wasn't much as far as online promotion back then. Yeah. Like, I, I've been doing stand-up long enough that my first headshot had to be in black and white because when they would print it in newspapers, if it was color, it would be all fucked up and distorted. Right. That was the big thing back in the day was, like, comedians have black and white headshots. Actors have color headshots. Because they yeah.
0: they'd be in the local weekly.
1: That's right. That's right. But Butte, can't... Montana, just have a color printer. <laughs> yeah.
0: They can't put it through... Uh... Put it through photoshop right so you did your first open mics um when did you like how what was your progression from there and what was the where, uh, so, where would you perform then like what were the shows
1: uh boiler room boiler uh-huh. room was the day night then um that was the big uh the big monday tuesday was i believe the wooden chicken i want to say out by the kmart on 102nd it's not a Kmart anymore. It was a Kmart. Uh, then it was Roscoe's on Wednesday and Thursday. Nothing on Friday, but I would just go to, to Comedy Club West Side. That for a long time was like a little hangout uh, of the Portland comedy scene. Like whatever you were doing on the weekend, you would close the night at, at Comedy Club West Side.
0: What were like the people that would headline that place? Like out of town or
1: uh, it's yeah uh let's see some of the craig gas came one time that tenacious was probably Dean. the no <laughs> oh no 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 craig gas is a uh, an impressionist who's famous from the howard stern show oh okay so no, kyle gas is, is <laughs> kyle gas is half of tenacious no, d these were all, all of these headliners were, you know, there was an era of road comedy that a lot of these headliners were like trying to get away from child support, alimony, yeah. weird warrants. So these were, <laughs> were people you've never heard of. Um, you know, I'm trying to think like the type of jokes. There was a guy who did a joke. He goes, uh, got a Viagra caught in my throat. My neck's been stiff ever since. You know, like jokes like that. Like living
0: living in a sedan, s- slinging jokes like that.
1: Yeah, they want to be paid in cash. Like, yeah, yeah, it, it was, yeah. It, it was it was a sketchy club. Uh, it was the first club I ever got paid work for. To being a host there, you got seventy five dollars for five shows. You also had to set up all the chairs and tables and then break them because afterwards it became a dance club. And you had to work the door.
0: (laughs) And you got 75 bucks for five shows.
1: Yeah. It it was, but at the time, like, you know, like apprenticing. And there was no other, you know, unless you got Harvey's, which at the time was like not easy to get into. That was that was how you got paid doing stand-up. There was no showcase shows that, that offered money.
0: Right. And Harvey's explained to people from out of town, like what Harvey's is.
1: Uh, <laughs> I mean, I can, I, I have the whole lineage on Harvey's uh, Harvey's was a comedy club that formed in the eighties comedy boom. Uh, it was, you know, the very uh, whatever you're thinking of eighties comedy, like that's exactly what Harvey's was. And it never updated. Right. They, they kept the same backdrop and uh, they would offer free tickets. They would have these comment cards on the table. And if you left your phone number, they would just call you and be like, hey, you want to come see a comedy show this weekend? And they would fill the house with people who paid nothing to see the show. Right. So they would heckle. They would get rowdy. Uh, they had a T-bone steak special. So people would be sitting there like, cutting steak and chewing, chomping on this big hunk of meat while you're trying to make them laugh. Like it, it was, it was work.
0: It's it an amazing place.
1: It, it was like, it, and look, I, I, I could badmouth it all I want, but the first time I ever got to be on that stage, like at that time in Portland felt like you made it. Like that was the first time I invited my parents to come see me on stage because if they see me at Harvey's, like I'm legitimate.
0: It's a real club. Yeah. I mean, it, it, my, it, my relatives that it, were from out of, out of Portland, like in, in the Willamette Valley, they were, they were like, you know, when they thought of Portland comedy, they're like Harvey's, you know, that's yeah. the place. Cause that's where yeah. you go see comedy. Everybody goes there.
1: Cause it's free. It's, uh, it, yeah. It was free. And, and you would get people who were on TV, like, You know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, I remember I I was working with this guy, Chicago, Steve Barkley. He wasn't from Chicago. But I asked him because at the time, like, I was really into, like, the process of writing. And I was like, so what's your writing process? And he goes, kid, what are you writing for? He was like, make an act, do the act, travel with the act. And I was just like, oh, I think I'm in the wrong place. (laughs) I don't think we're the same people. <laughs> this
0: is not. Yeah. That's the old model. I remember when I opened for some, I can't remember his name now, but I opened for a headliner at Harvey's who he did jokes where he literally did Clinton administration jokes in yeah. like tw- 2012, you know, 2013. Yeah. And I was just going like, holy shit. So that means he's been doing this same set since the nineties.
1: Yeah. I, I had a headliner there one time. Tell me he goes, I don't do stand up anymore. They just book me for the same week every year. And so I just take the extra money. And he goes, so if you want to do like 10 or 15 extra minutes, you can, because I, I really don't have 45 and I resented the idea so much. I just went, no, I'm paid for 30 minutes. And I was like, no, you're going to suffer for that 15. I want your job and you just get it. I'm just gonna make it for easier me. for you yeah I would love the extra time but I'm not gonna do it for you
0: I was thinking like what are the craziest Harvey's stories I mean I just remember you know my style of comedy like there was times where I did stuff at Harvey's where I had the entire place was like sold out to the back you know packed with people <laughs> and and you're talking all eight like people like you know, people in their nineties and people, yeah. in the eighteen year or was it twenty one and over?
1: He's twenty one and over. Yeah, yeah so
0: twenty one. So it's like, and and just dying, utter silence. You know, <laughs> 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 or just you know, I mean, just the most but brutal. It was so
1: cavernous that it, if you were having a bad set, you could hear the very back row.
0: Oh my god!
1: And the but when you kill us there so though.
0: Yeah, the stage is like yeah. 10 feet high. So you're just standing, no. but ab- like a full, like your feet are above the heads of the people eating dinner. Just standing yeah, there.
1: You can see Spittle in the, the spotlights oh, yeah, just, just, just fly to that front row. You're like, oh, I'm sorry for your nachos. Yeah, <laughs> so
0: just brutal. Yeah, um, was, you earn your, your keep
1: there. Did I tell you about how I got banned from there? banned from harvey's now yeah so when helium opened and and helium is a very good comedy club that opened up in portland harvey's made a declaration that if you went to work at helium you couldn't work at harvey's and when helium came to town they asked every comic in town to submit a headshot a video and a bio and at the time in portland comedy like you got gigs from word of mouth. Like yes. I got Harvey's because Susan Rice brought me yeah. and I had a good, good set. And then they just booked me. No one had all three of those things. Like, <laughs> I think the only people who sent in those things were like Augie Smith and Lonnie Bruin. Yeah. Uh, so they, they told us, they were like, look, we're going to hire local comics, but you're all going to have to become hosts. We're not going to feature any of you. Um, And so I was a, Feature at Harvey's, but you know, Helium had real comedians coming. And so I I was like, I they booked me for one of the first weeks they were open. And I was like, I'm gonna take the gig. And Harvey's was like, Great, you're banned. So I was like, all right. And a few months go by and they're kind of loosening up on it, but I'm like still just because no one else got banned by the way like I was the only person who they were like you specifically you're banned because you're the traitor yeah I was the first one to to jump so uh there was a amateur comedy contest or something that the final show was at Harvey's and so I go up I do my set I crush I have a really good set I invited helium's manager and her husband to be my two free comps for the night and at the end of my set i go hey if you all enjoyed me you can see me this weekend opening for gilbert godfrey at helium <laughs> and i walked off stage and the club manager at the time just from the back of the room just held her middle finger up at me and then i never set foot in there again
0: No, you were done that was it
1: yeah <laughs>
0: so you're never going to be the next chicago steve
1: no, no, no. <laughs> and it's funny, Ron Funches, uh, I don't know his exact story, but that's also the headliner that he uses as an example of just, uh, just the absolute worst.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There was some brutal... Uh, I, I, I must have done Harvey's three or four times, but yeah, there was a couple times in there where I was like, this is what people were talking about when they talk about old comedy. You know? Yeah. Like, just... Like when people talk about the creepy dudes, you know, and the, like the way these guys would talk about women, I was just sitting there going, Oh my God, these are like guys from this other world, you know?
1: And you were seeing it in, you know, 2010, like imagine 2007, 2008, like it was, it was wild. Yeah. Some of those headliners were, you know, I mean, it was, it was why I stopped going on the road because the headliners were wild and and at the time the you know the gigs were in these dive bars in the middle of uh, idaho and montana and you know the, your audiences is, is sketchy your headliner is sketchy i'm like yeah, what was that what company. was that
0: circuit called that that um everybody, what is it called the tri-
1: Tribble runs
0: Tribble runs tell people about yeah. the Tribble runs what that was
1: uh, so triple runs were another kind of relic from that '80s comedy boom, and and in the '80s the triple runs were it was like the premier Northwest shows. Um, most of them were in Red Lion hotels mm-hmm. in their lounge. Um, so you got a fairly nice hotel. Um, you could you know walk from your room to the gig like it was it was kind of nice. Um, but by the time I got there, it was like the occasional red lion and mostly just like one of the venues we performed at. It was one of those towns where you're on the highway and all of a sudden the highway starts lowering the the miles (laughs) per hour. It's like uh, 55, 45, 25, 15. And it's like, now you're in a town. Yeah. Uh, And although that, that show, like people came wearing like ties and dresses, like after the show, they were like, do you know jeff foxworthy have you ever met him before like they thought we were stars but but like uh like i remember i did this show one time where after the show i was smoking some weed with some people and i was like hey do you guys have any of this i could buy like we're on the road for another week and they were like "Yeah, yeah yeah come back to the house with us and so I go back to their house. We're smoking weed. They just give me weed. I didn't even have to pay for it. Um, and then after about 15 minutes, these three guys come in that I can only describe as sketchy as fuck. Like, they just come in. They look tweaked out. And and they, they're they bringing the meth to the party. And the dude who drove me to this house, which, by the way, is in the middle of nowhere, uh, he starts smoking Math and I'm like, hey man, uh this isn't really my scene. You think I can get a ride back to the the hotel? And he's like, Yeah, yeah, give me five minutes. So, like 10 minutes goes by, and uh, and I'm like, Okay, I'm just I'm gonna walk, I'm gonna leave. I I can't be here anymore. And so I'm just walking in the wilderness. Like, this is pre-Google Maps, like I have a flip phone at the time. And so I'm walking for 45 minutes. And finally, I see a police officer parked on the side of the road. And so I knock on his window and I'm like, hey, man, uh, I'm the comedian over at the, you know, the Goofy Foot or whatever the fuck it was called. Uh, I went over to a, a party at a house. I got a little crazy. Can you just point me in the direction to to this venue? And he goes, yeah, things can get pretty wild out here. Come on, hop in. I'll give you a ride. So I get in this cop car and I'm riding back to the venue and I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, this cop car smells like weed. And all of a sudden it clicks. I'm like, oh, I have a shitload of weed in my pocket in Montana sitting in a cop car. And he's like, yeah, folks can get pretty rowdy out here. I can tell right away you're not from around. Like he was totally nice and and dropped me off, but you know they were they were sketchy gigs uh you would go out for a week or two at a time and you would be driving through treacherous Idaho and Montana like winter weather it was it was wild it, it was again like if you killed it, it was great but most of the time it was just people looking at you blind. like when's karaoke going to start yeah
0: yeah, I did a lot of those regional shows. I never did the tribal runs. I don't know if those were still going when I, I still heard of people going on those. But, yeah.
1: Uh, and, and that so. was another one that, like, you had to be grandfathered There was no, like, submitting to be no. in a tribal. No. Uh, sorry, but you were know saying?
0: I was just saying, like, in comedy, I always thought, you know, having grown up in music and, you know, punk and stuff, where, different type of thing than when people are super intentional about being at an event, you know?
1: And let's not forget the handful of people that don't even realize a comedy night is about to start. And then all of a sudden the bar shuts off all the TVs and they're like,
0: what the fuck?
1: I I did this one. It was in, I want to say it's called like four lakes, Washington, four rivers, Washington, central Washington. And it was in, there was a lounge at the back of a trailer park. And so we get there and the oldest cowboy I've ever seen, just he looked like a, a, just a, the Marble man's dad. (laughs) And he comes up and he hands me an unplugged microphone and he goes, well, cords on the floor over there. And I go, Oh, you guys don't announce that the show or, or introduce me or anything. And with a deep sigh, he walks over, plugs in the mic, and he goes, Hey, comedy's starting. Here's the first guy. My life has changed since moving to Los Angeles. The biggest way it's changed is now I live in a living room. Yeah. All my life i maintained this whole bedroom thing. Since moving to Los Angeles, I'm like, no, a living room's good. Two, lo- two roommates that I live with. People say, well, you must lose your privacy having two roommates living in a living room. No, I don't. They sure as fuck do. I got nowhere else to go. You know what I'm saying? This is where I live. My bedroom's attached to the fucking couch. All right? They lose their privacy. But my roommates are starting to use me like a forced wingman. They'll bring dates home and they're like, well, we got two choices. We can sit out here in the living room, where there's a grown man reading comic books. Or we can go to my bedroom where there's a door. They take the door every time, people and holds the mic (laughs) out for me to come over. And I went up, I was supposed to do a half hour. I probably did seven minutes and just completely defeat. I just ended. I was like, all right, that's it. And, uh, and then the headliner went on and and crushed. You killed the room.
0: Yeah, man, you get to see, I mean, yeah, seeing what uh, that, that those headliners, where you might see them in Portland and go, oh, this guy's a hack or whatever, or, but then you see them out in the hinterlands killing it for the people. Yeah. And you're like, oh, you know, it's just like anything else. There's people sort of have their worlds that they thrive in. And, you know, they're not looking for whatever alternative comedy out there or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Sure.
1: And, and it helps you figure out, like, you know, I got to a point doing those shows where I knew I wasn't going to kill i i was not going to win over a majority of the room but the like you know chubby nerd with like a, a beard down to his chest and, and his girlfriend come up and they're like hey man you're one of the best comedians i i've seen out here it's like that's who i'm here for like I'm, I'm here gratifying. for that yeah like i i'm not it's the audience you want versus the audience that's there. And and there's usually a couple of people, you know, especially in those smaller towns who are like, man, I, I don't get to see anything remotely weird out here. So thank you for coming here. Right.
0: Just- yeah. Yeah. I remember um, one time I think Shane Torres took me on one of my first road trips out of Portland. And I remember that was something he said to me. He's like, don't change for the circumstances. Do what you do, and and y- y- you're gonna want to change. You know, when you go walk into a room full of guys with backwards baseball hats and at a sports bar in you know rural somewhere, you're gonna want to change your thing. But they'll smell it. It's not you. Do with your thing, and yeah. fuck them. You know, and and like built and just what he, what you were just saying. He was just saying like you know build the audience that you know if you just get 3 people that love you for 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 who you are that's what you want you don't want it to have like 30 people going yeah he was all right or whatever
1: exactly you know but but I did have to it was I had to step back from those road gigs because I would find myself even in my writing like oh, I don't really think this is funny but this would crush in, yeah. you know and so I was like no this isn't this isn't what I you know there was no no one had really been successful from portland you know like in the way of like you know like ron or ian like there was no promise of a future in doing comedy and you know no one made a living solely doing comedy so if i wasn't enjoying it there's no point in you know driving these crazy distances and going these places like so i i did eventually have to kind of step back because it just I don't know. I don't want to slide off the side of a hill to to tell dick jokes. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. Like when you're you're traveling, some of those. I remember, like Jacob Christopher and I one night coming home from Bend, and we had done like a show t- to maybe you know twenty people at some bar. We were going back through these icy passes, like in my little Toyota, and I was like going, I don't, you know, this isn't. If you're dead, it doesn't matter. But like, it isn't how I want to die. Like coming right. home from like having just made thirty dollars and, and had like, or played in front of yeah twenty people. Yeah, who didn't it, really even like it.
1: I uh, I once had a drunk headliner that I had to drive his car back. We were coming back from uh, Spokane, and it was just starting to like snow, and it was really cold, and it was a big storm. And he was like passing out in the passenger seat of his car, but he thought I was going too slow. So he pushed the gas pedal down physically while I was driving on the freeway. I was like, no, like had to like kick his hand while I was driving. I was like, I cannot, I don't want to, this isn't how I want to do it. Like I would rather just do crummy local shows and not get paid anything than than do this. And
0: then Portland kind of just, became like a real comedy boom town again so you kind of just waited it out until it it became a hot place to be because like by the time i I started in portland what what like 2010 or 11 you know you were like one of the most established people in town and who else ron ian i mean ron had just even left right around then
1: yeah yeah ron ron came out you know like a like a meteor from the sky like i remember i saw his very we're talking ron
0: funches here
1: ron funches um i saw his very first open mic and i remember leaning over to another local comic and being like this guy's gonna blow us all out of the water like he was you know the best first set you can have is someone saying like oh you got some funny jokes in there But Ron had bits. He had a series of jokes in one subject line that led to an ultimate punchline. He had that right out of the gate. Like, he really was, like, and that was really kind of the fun thing at the time is, like, you had, like, Ron Funches, Richard Bain, like, you had so many comedians that were so funny that we all had, it's like, I may have to follow one of these people any given night. So I have to up my game. And it became this thing where it wasn't like, it wasn't competition in that I'm going to beat you. It's just, I can't look shitty after you. I can't right, be the one right. who ruins the show. Um, and, and so I think that's where like, you know, and like Shane and, and, you know, you and kind of that, the i i think the like real wave of like what portland comedy became um you know we were all i mean frankly it was it was richard bain rest in peace who uh we were all just trying to be as funny as that guy set the bar yeah he really did because he was he was a bit of everything like he was weird and strange but he had some like almost kind of hacky one-liners that would work in those like weird, like he was, he, he could fit anywhere. Um, and, and Total so he package. was, yeah. And he also didn't give a fuck. If you didn't like him, he would make the audience hate him. Yes. Uh, but I also saw him, he had a five minute set at a competition one time and he just walked on stage. They started looking at him and just laughing at at how he looked, uh, and when the laugh started dying down, he goes, "This is fucking easy." And they just started. Cra- His whole set was just him standing there, and you know he was he was a beast. He was why he's how Portland got to where it is in, in comedy.
0: He was the secret he's sauce. The- yeah, he was just so. Um, just what you were saying, like like. I, 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 there's some quote i heard somebody was saying it's not about what you say it's like who you are like the real funny people are just funny people you know and like yeah, richard Bain, like you were describing just one of those guys like just the, his body language his look I was thinking about like john belushi or something like that where it's just the physical presence is just funny
1: uh of all the people i worked with the the funniest and the most you know, we all kind of put on a, we become a bit of a different person on stage. No one is truly themselves on stage, uh, except for Norm McDonald. Yeah, right. Norm, uh, I you know, I got to work with him a couple of times, and he was off stage. Like, you would almost think, like, does he even realize why he's so funny? Because it, it's just his cadence, his timing, like, it just was him um but then if you talked about again like the craft and writing like he would get into it so you're like oh no no no. he's he's well aware of of how this works but he's also just so in that timing the voice like it was just it was magic like he he was one of the the fewer i'm like wow that is that is the embodiment of of comedy
0: the definition of the stand-up comic
1: yeah, yeah.
0: As, as artist and and just and then also his his human spirit you know he was such a i don't know he just had a depth you know of uh character or whatever you know what yeah I'm
1: saying? He, he was uh and he was like a, a spiritual guy like he that's would what talk i mean about, yeah yeah he would talk <laughs> about god but he'd also be like yeah i don't i don't care what you believe in you know but but i know i'm gonna be in paradise when i die which in right. hindsight you know the time I worked with him was was when he knew he was ill um so now it is like in hindsight I'm like oh maybe maybe he was really laying some some wisdom on me
0: yeah so that um what would you say was the turning point in portland and in com- i mean when portland became how would you characterize portland comedy it was, it's kind of became the city where people would move from other cities to get good and then they'd move to la or new york
1: Yeah, I mean, we became a a boom city. You know, it it was um, when I was coming up, Seattle had this group of comedians, the People's Republic of Comedy is what they called themselves. Um, And that was like, um, no one would know him now, but Scott Moran, he's a director now down here. Um, But he kind of organized it. Andy Haynes was up there. Oh, yeah. Very funny. uh, Rory Scovel, you know, young Rory Scovel was there. And so that was kind of a lot of Portland, like me, Richard, Andy Wood, we would all go up and do shows up there. Uh Holly Papan, she would go quite a bit with us. And um, so that was kind of where Bridgetown had its seeds planted. That's the famous uh,
0: Portland comedy festival that no longer exists, but was a huge yeah,
1: event. had a 10-year run, but but Bridgetown was was what did it. Um, you know, venues that Hadn't thought about doing comedy before. Were doing comedy, you know. The first year was bad; like no one showed up. But Patton Oswalt came down, and he did the final night, and and that that sold out uh, that one show, and and that's why it got to kept keep going. But Bridgetown was was the turning point. Like Andy Wood putting that together. Gave portland a comedy scene that that's where helium so helium at the time um they were looking at either portland or bridgeport village um to or no, no no it was they were looking at portland or seattle but the improv was thinking about opening a location at bridgeport village so they were kind of hemming and hawing on where they were gonna open a club and they came to a Bridgetown and sponsored one year and that was that was when they decided to to open a club in Portland was so even helium wouldn't be in Portland uh if not for Bridgetown so yeah Bridgetown right. did it um and then Portlandia right was, was the the cement you know that was. It made Portland seem cool and weird. Fred was so cool about like coming to local shows and and you know just giving us like, look a, a real person's coming to to our weird you know open shows. Mic. Yeah,
0: yeah, little yeah. Yeah. right. Yeah, the um also the fact that and, and I remember a lot of people you know would comment on this that that you could do open mic seven nights a week if you're you know yeah. learning and also there were people there to see the shows you know there would be audiences yeah. at open mics and some of them like the one you used to host at the Curious Comedy theater which was my favorite open mic and you were the longtime host of that and that show there'd be times at an open mic on a Sunday night there'd be like 75 people audience members well, that would,
1: and I would um I I taught a stand-up class there and so I would do the class shows at the open mics. Because you know, if I had ten people in that class and they all bring five people to come see them do stand up for the first time, sure, that you know the friend they came to see is going to suck, but they're going to get to see all the rest of, of yeah. Portland, right? And
0: you'd uh, yeah, I remember those shows because it was like a full on helium size audience, like two hundred people.
1: It's great. Uh, those th- that was the best part of doing that class was was those shows.
0: How long did you t- teach that?
1: Three or four years. Mm-hmm. I was teaching that in improv um, at the time because, you know, I was just trying to. I really wanted comedy to be my, you know, primary income, but I just never got to that point.
0: Yeah. Well, you're so uh, good. I mean, you were one of those people that I looked at as like a real comic, you know? Oh, and you were also one man. of the most encouraging people because, like, when I first started in Portland, you know, I was really hit or miss because I was so experimental doing different things. Oh, every time. I, I love it. And you were always the one that was like, keep doing what you're doing. I get it. I like it. I see where it's going. Cause so many people were yeah. like, dude, quit. You need to quit. You're so good at other things. Don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm, I'm doing this. But then, you know, it took like whatever, two years of that until I hit some stride and was suddenly like, oh, I'm working at helium. Th- so there, you know,
1: <laughs>
0: my theory <laughs> yeah, was no, just I- like, you know, suck more and take more chances so you can get good quick. Just don't be. You know, because there's that thing that can happen at the open mic level, especially where you want to get laughs. So you end up doing the same sort of thing that works like it's a show, but you're not doing a show. You're at an open mic. So don't try and kill every time at the open mic.
1: Yeah, I used to always look at open mics. And Bear in mind, I know nothing about boxing, but I'm about to make a boxing analogy here. But uh, I always looked at the open mics the way a boxer must look at being in the gym you know yeah. like when a, a boxer's goal in a, a match is to knock their opponent out as quickly as possible comedian's goal is to knock the audience out as quickly as possible but when a boxer's in the gym hitting the heavy bag you can't knock out a heavy bag right you try, but you're just gonna hurt yourself but what you can do in the gym is is think about like oh, when I jab, I need to rotate my wrist a little bit and you can work on nuance. And so if I would be like, oh, I keep using the wrong word for this bit. And so if I can just remember that one thing and get that one thing through, that's a success. Like I don't need to kill. I'm not trying to kill here. What I'm working on is that jab. I'm working on that uppercut. I'm working on that hook. Like this isn't the place to kill. If I do happen to kill great and and the helium open mic was a bit of an exception like an audience would show up there and the way they did the you know the list at the time where the the people who worked there were at the end like you felt kind of obligated to kill on those but right every other mic that week would be to set up for what I was going to do tuesday at, at helium
0: yeah yeah the helium mic that was such a important part of the the portland ecosystem too because you kind of had this thing each week especially once i started working there like you did and you were automatically on the list every time because it used to be kind of like yeah. a big deal to get on the list you know yeah because you're gonna have an audience yeah. and stuff
1: and you know when i started like uh at the boiler room there would be such a light turnout that kevin michael moore the host would be like hey if you do five minutes right now I'll give you three minutes when a real, when the real audience shows up. Mm. So like me and the other new comics who are, you know, there at the very beginning, we would do five minutes to one another. And then as the audience slowly trickled in, you'd be like, all right, now here's so-and-so. So So you get two sets a night, um, but one just in front of all comics.
0: boiler room was kind of a, also an important uh, thing. Well, I mean, not kind of it was a very important thing in the sense that it was it was kind of like the opposite of helium in that way that's like it's one of the hardest rooms and it was also the longest running open mic on the west coast when it closed it had been continually going since like what the 80s
1: yeah i think it was 15 17 years when when it ended so it, it was when i came around it was the oldest mic in town. Um, so I, I mean, it was, and like you said, like it was such a tough room that like, if you got a chuckle in that room, you had a killer, bit. you had a bit that was going to murder Helium yeah. the, the next day. And, and when you had completely
0: of, killed it there, it was just amazing. Oh
1: well, yeah. When you get some, you know, it, it was in the middle of like old town, downtown Portland. So you'd get some random people who would wander in and it could become a very interesting night
0: and it also was split so that the room was kind of l-shaped so you're standing in the middle of the l so there's like even the audience was divided into two halves going in either direction so it's just so weird from that respect
1: and a a pool table so people are like playing pool during your set uh did you ever get to now, now it's a starbucks Ugh, yeah, Suki's.
0: Yeah, Suki's for sure did that. Uh, I never another... did well there.
1: No, no, you weren't supposed to. But again, it was another one where, like, if you got a chuckle in that room, uh, that was actually back when I smoked cigarettes. Um, that was the room where I decided I wasn't going to smoke cigarettes on stage anymore. Why? I saw a picture of me holding a cigarette, and I have very dainty fingers. <laughs> and so I, didn't, I thought I looked cool and tough with cigarettes and I did not. I was like, that's what I look like. Smoke. I cannot be getting in front of an audience. Uh, just I like, I mean, like, I mean, I with
0: cigarettes, to- you're, they're killing you. You want to at least look cool.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> there was this headliner, Arlo stone, and he would roll his own cigarettes on stage during his set. And that was probably the coolest anyone ever looked. It's pretty in bad in my time when you could still back in my day when you could smoke cigarettes on stage
0: oh god that that was like the thing that that saved um comedy for me was the fact that smoking was banned and you could go out to open mic seven nights a week and not be dying from the smoke because all those uh, bars and... were just like you could cut the air
1: right and you know with the rain and so like they, it's not like oh. they could leave doors open and no. You'd go home, you know, it. like, even when I was a smoker, I would come home and I'd be like, I fucking smell so bad. Disgusting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the few things in culture where I can go. That is true progress. The fact mm-hmm. that smoking was like just banned. And then you suddenly didn't have to breathe a, a pack's worth of cigarettes to do like an art form.
1: And, and I'll tell you what, like as someone who smoked at the time, like that really helped me quit when it just wasn't always around yeah it's hard and now just, cigarettes look like a, a status symbol like if i see someone smoking i'm like oh look who has an extra 10 bucks lying around somebody's rich <laughs>
0: so you're cooking along with portland um then at, so so ron Funches, who you you've been opening for ron now for how long on tour
1: uh i mean on and off since he he kind of got on TV for the first time. So six, seven years now, so uh, um, must be a
0: real different kind of tour than, uh, the old tribal runs.
1: Oh my God. It's <laughs> it, the best. Like, you know, I get to see the country with my best friend and, and then we started doing this tour with uh, a comedian from down here, Blair Saki. And, you know, the three of us, like our big thing was like, we want to do a show where for an hour and a half, no one's being overly negative no one's like Ugh, the world sucks fuck this fuck that like we want to give you an hour and a half of joy we're going to talk about the things we love like not to the like hippy dippy where it's like everything's great like the world's still shit but we're gonna be okay
0: this is an oasis uh,
1: yeah yeah so that was that was the best because then the whole show is is you know just you and your friends and, and yeah, I mean, I've gotten to see the country with my friend. I've gotten to watch, you know, my pal who, you know, he slept on my couch and, you know, he had a gross apartment in Salem with a wet spot on the floor and (laughs) now he's successful and, you know, doing TV shows with Maya Rudolph. And like, it's, it's amazing. It's they, and I mean, through him, I'm able to, you know, I would not be in LA without his encouragement and belief in me when I, you know, I, I, I never thought I, I could make it down here. And, you know, I have a job in production now and it's all, you know, if you, if you follow the trail, it's all, all through Ron, um, Ron's graces. Like he, he is really, a a true blue friend and, and I love that guy.
0: Yeah. He's a very good guy. I remember I think Suki's you're talking about Suki's, which was it's a bar as a part of a motel, right? It was like a hotel. It was
1: in the basement of a motel, and like someone had killed themselves in the stairwell that leads up to the hotel. Like the whole place had a weird energy. Super,
0: it was and it's not like what you picture when you think of a hotel bar. There's like a dive bar at like a yeah. motor lodge or something in this weird yeah, part of was. Portland. <laughs> it was kind of surrounded by really busy streets. It's in this sort of chaotic area. Um, Yeah. And, but I was going to say, you know, I've never seen people I've seen very few people ever do well in that room. But one time Ron had come back, he had just moved to LA and came back and did a set. It was like the funniest and the, the best response I've ever seen anyone get besides Richard Bain. Yeah. Again, again, just, that thing you were talking about with seeing ron's first set you know just the uniqueness the completely uh singular style the timing yeah the rhythm of the musicality of it you know
1: absolutely Um, yeah and even getting to see that evolve you know like it's been it's been amazing watching him and it's it's crazy like um it's going to be his 40th birthday, not this weekend, but next weekend. And it's like, we met when we were kids. you know, we were 23 years old when we first met and, and to be here now, like it's, it's amazing. Like it, I remember Susan Rice told me one time, she goes, she was like, you know, you think it's exciting now, just wait till you see your first friend on TV. And she was right. Like, it really was like, holy shit. Like, we can we can do something again like seeing berserk it's like oh there's a world out there outside of triple runs outside of i mean even helium at the time like it's very easy to get comfortable when something's working well and so to see someone go somewhere else it's like oh there's a world out there and i want to i want to be a part of it
0: tell people who susan rice is
1: Yeah. Susan Rice, um, probably my first mentor in comedy. Um, she's a headliner. She was down in LA in the eighties, like at the comedy store. Um, you know, she had TV appearances. She is, she is, I owe so much of, of who I am as a comedian to Susan. She's why I didn't become a shitty road comic. She, I remember, The first show I ever did with her was just north of Seattle, and we drove all the way there, and this venue didn't give you a free meal. And so the server came up and was like, hey, can I get you anything? And Susan's like, oh, I'll have a burger and a Diet Coke. And she goes, what are you getting? And I was like, oh, nothing. I'm fine. I I don't like eating before shows. And she goes, what would your mother say if I brought you all this way and didn't at least buy you dinner. And she, you know, I just didn't have money and didn't yeah. want to seem poor or sad. And, and she saw right through it and, and bought me food. And she would tell me, she's like, you know, this is funny, but that's lazy. That's easy. Like she would really let you know uh, if something was bad. Uh, and then she also had stories. Like she, she knew comedy um, and loved it. She loved comedy. Whereas a lot of those headliners were just jobbers.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. She, yeah she, and I, You think of all the generations of comics too, in Portland that like when I started and I got, you know, any kind of reputation and I, and I got to know her, she, I had the same experience, you know, she was just so encouraging and, like you were saying, she has good taste and 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 then knowing also the lineage with her going back to you know, the eighties. It's just so cool to have that presence on the scene and also being a, a woman, you know, in comedy from that yeah. era. It's like that's yeah. a part of the reason why she didn't suck because all those dudes right. from that and- era, is so few didn't.
1: And some of the stories she told me about, you know, going on the road back in the day and like having to put her dresser against her door because headliners would literally, you know, I'm like, okay, I I need to make sure to never be anything near. Like it, it was, it was very, I, I'm glad that, that she was, um, you know, she took me under her wing and, and she was a bit, you know. She took me on the road more than anyone. I mean, she she was truly the best. Yeah,
0: she still is. We're talking yeah, about her like yeah, it's past yeah. tense.
1: She's I still... Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but, you know, we're talking about the past. But, yeah, I mean, but it's yeah. so cool to see her. You know, she's still out there doing it. And, and I mean, some of the last shows I did, did with her, she's destroyed, killed it. And she's got audience that, that have been seeing her for 30 years.
1: And, and yeah, she's another one who any one of these rooms, like whether it's a, a packed house at, yes. at healing or a dive bar in, you know, in Idaho, like she's going to kill. Like right. she just, she kills. So good. Yeah. yeah I love so, su-
0: funny. so supportive and nice. Yeah. So who else was, um, so that, that era that, that, so you're Ian, of course, Ian Carmel. He was probably, you know, the next to Ron was like the most um, legend or whatever respected person, you know, at that time, too. You know, so the kind of person where, again, you just see him once and you go, oh, that guy's got a thing.
1: Mm -hmm. He's got a presence.
0: Yeah, it's just like an undeniable uh, X factor or something. So like him. So did he start? Did he come from improv or did he start as a stand up?
1: Yeah, so he was an improviser, and I don't know the exact, like, I think he had gone down to L.A. right around the time I was starting stand-up, and then he came back, and he was doing improv um, over at the Brody Theater, and I was doing improv at Curious, and um, once he came back, I think that's when he started doing doing stand-up. Um, But, you know, he had that he had stage experience, which, you know, that's that's the hardest thing is just finding out who you are while you stand there.
0: Right. And just writing straight up writing chops. I mean, it's not it's not crazy that he became the head writer for like James Gordon because he was such a writing powerhouse, you know.
1: And, you know, he's been on that show since it since its inception. Like he was there before they knew what the show was going to be. I think he started as an assistant and worked his way up. Yeah, he's a head writer and a producer on it. So yeah, he yeah. absolutely crushed it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think um like you were talking about that that uh that era um whatever it was, whatever uh 2010 t- through now with the open mics, like you were saying, that one of one of the things that made them so good to progress in was the combination of people like you, Ian shane nathan Brannon, being like headliner level comics would always be sprinkled in the open mic mix so it was never um you know just a bunch of people who are all flailing you, ha- you right. have and then everybody in between and up to the brand new person so that that's that sweet spot for getting good at comedy you know, because yeah, you have the pressure to want to go up. You see what you don't want to be from from somebody else, and it's always present, pretty much on any lineup.
1: Yeah, and and I think I don't know how it is now, but at least back then, like it, it wasn't competing. It's not like we were trying to like, oh, no, I'm going to be better than you. I'm going to It was like, no, we're all just trying to be. We're better. all doing our best. We're all giving each other tags to jokes. Like I really looking at it now i'm like man i'm i'm really impressed with how supportive everyone was of of each other
0: i remember people from out of town also saying that too people who came from other places and going like god you got you don't know how good you have it here <laughs> with all these people everybody's so nice
1: and, and i'll tell you moving to la like you do Really, I'm like, man, I miss when I could just go to any open mic and you know, and again, I don't know because I've been gone now for almost five years. Yeah. uh so I, I don't know if open mics fill up now, but but it was nice to just be able to go in, sign up, and be like, ah, I'm gonna get a set tonight. Out here, like if you go to an open mic, it's like, oh, we put your name in a hat and see <laughs> if we draw.
0: Yeah you might get oh, okay. on, you might have to just wait till two 30 to find out that you're not going to go up.
1: Right. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, that's also why, you know, like the, when I very first started comedy in the early two thousands, I moved to LA pretty quickly afterwards. Cause we had this opportunity, my brother and I down there. And, and I realized very quickly, like, Oh, well also LA was a completely different comedy was completely different then, but right. see, seeing that like, Oh, it's, this is one of the worst places to develop as a comic. From the start, oh, you know what I'm saying. Like, there's nobody's there to see. Why would anybody in LA go see an open mic when you could go see a showcase with seven people that you've seen on TV and movies? You know,
1: literally have every headliner in the world at the Comedy Store yeah. all doing yeah. six minute sets tonight. Yeah, there's no no need, and it <laughs> it does. Like, I feel bad saying it, but the people who come up in LA comedy, like, it's just it's actually more equipped for like the triple runs and it's, it's more aggressive and it's yeah. angry because it's like, Hey, look at me, look at me. You know, it's, yeah. it's yelling at people to get the attention.
0: It's hard there
1: uh, to develop. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's what, and I don't know about Portland anymore either. Cause I don't, I'm not doing it, but uh, you know, you're not, t- you're not going out anymore. No, not no. I haven't. I haven't really since just before COVID. I, I didn't. I just sort of stopped. And then when COVID stopped being having put an end to comedy, I just didn't start doing it again. I I right. got really back into painting during COVID, and I was like, you know, I don't feel the call, you know. And I look at it. I'm think I don't know if I ever. I feel like I just needed to learn something about myself and about life you know through through doing stand-up comedy because you learn so much yeah so much yeah i just i don't know i also came you know when i got serious about it in portland i was already you know almost 40 it's like right i was coming down a different point of life than a lot of people who are starting out you know
1: yeah i remember when we were working at the distillery together and i i was thinking about moving to la and i remember talking to you and i was like you should move to la like you're so funny like you should go to la and you're like yeah i got an art studio out here I, you know I, I like it here i don't i've done la i've done all that and i was just like i remember thinking like man that is so zen and so i was i really was impressed by just you're like no i i know what i'm looking for i know what i want and uh it was it, it to this day i think about it, i was like man jason like a fucking monk over there. I love that guy.
0: <laughs> I'm a funky monk. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, but I will say, you know, like knowing you and the uh and coming up in that time with people like you it's such a huge part of the experience. I mean, that's what kept me interested in it and you know, having been involved in so many vital scenes in my life and through art, music, uh you know, I really recognized portland when i got first got involved in comedy i was like this is a special time in a special place you know i could just see it like like any other scene that i had been in that i might not have recognized when i was younger but being that i was mature coming to it with this um, experience it's like oh man this is like some kind of a hotbed of opportunity to for to grow and then i would see all these people moving that also went on to do all kinds of great things people like amy miller curtis cook yeah um you're shame coming from other places what's that
1: Shane's crushing it
0: shane yeah i mean destroying and seeing that happening i was like this is a place where people are coming through honing and going on to bigger things and it was really cool to be a part of that and to see all these artists just yeah blossoming and then yeah and the rotation of comedy how there's always this new crop coming up and people who you think might stick around they disappear really quick and somebody else who you think doesn't stand a chance does stick around and gets good you know it's so cool to watch
1: yeah you really have uh you've gotten to see some some cool scenes in your time i remember when when we first because you know i i think you like me like neither one of us necessarily exude like oh i listen to a lot of punk rock growing you know we seem like Fairly mild mannered dudes, and and I remember when we first started talking about punk, and you told me you dropped out of high school to go on tour with Seven Seconds. I was like, what? <laughs> like, that, yeah, I remember I that conversation. Off. Oh, it, it blew my mind. I was like, I dropped out of high school to work at Blockbuster Video. This guy is so much cooler than I
0: am. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I remember after I started doing the podcast, I had a couple people uh, from comedy listen to it and they were like i didn't even know you had any relation to punk i just thought you were this weird cuz you know i like you said my my stage presence and manner and of dressing and stuff people i just thought you were some dude from some company that just started doing comedy or whatever but uh right you know and then he's like then i'm listening to your podcast and i didn't know you were a punk rock dude but um yeah it's cool we get a, if we live long enough you get to live many different lives
1: Totally. Totally. And, and yeah, I do think like in hindsight, you know, I probably because of being young and just being in the moment and, you know, I, I got to see it before there was that, that path that like Ron and Ian kind of blazed for everyone else. Like I really, when I started doing comedy, I didn't think it it was a career. It's not something you did as a job. It's something you did for fun. And, uh, and then getting to see it grow and evolve and watch it become a scene, like, I didn't really, in the moment, I think, appreciate how unique it was um, until now. And, you know, lately I've been like, man, what a, what a cool... T- so many people are now working in, you know, even... The manager of of Helium, Adam, is working in show business now. Like even even the people working our clubs uh are now working in the business. Like it's right. it, it's crazy that, that that all just kinda happened because there was no promise of it.
0: Right. Well, it's funny, I was thinking about um how so often I'll be watching TV or something. I'll be I'm at my mom's right now and we we will be watching a movie or something and I'll how many times I see people and I go, oh, I opened for that guy. Oh, I, I did a show with that dude. I met her. Yeah. Uh, the, the, and it's just having spent 10 years like seriously doing comedy. I've met so many people now that are in movies and TV and every show I watch practically. I mean, there's hardly any time I turn on TV for a few hours that I don't see somebody I worked with, you know.
1: Right. Which it, it's such a cool. small community. Yeah, it really it, is. It's so cool. yeah Yeah, i had you know during the pandemic i had um norm mcdonald bob saget and gilbert Gottfried, who i all opened for all died like i'm getting to the point where my headliners are starting to to pass away which is wild and
0: a lot of these young people like jack knight people like that that you think oh this guy's gonna be around
1: forever and then it's
0: just boom
1: it's exciting but yeah it, it is uh I don't know
0: what it is. Yeah. So what do you got coming up in life? Do you have anything you want to promote or direct people uh,
1: to? I don't really cuz I'm, you know, I'm working in uh in production now. Um so I don't really What have are anything. you
0: doing in production?
1: Uh so I'm uh, I'm an executive assistant uh for uh, a showrunner that works for Sony. So I I work for Sony, but Basically, we don't have a show, so it's a lot of, like, development and pitches and stuff. So learning how how many hoops you have to jump through to get TV made is basically kind of my amazing. job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, saved me during the pandemic when, when stand-up dried up, so. Yeah. Um, but August 10th through the 13th in San Pedro at the Sardine, um, they're doing the Recess Romp 2, where uh, Portlanders, you can see Berserk reunite, which they have not reunited since my Going Away show uh, five years ago. Uh, FYP is going to be there, Toys That Kill, Dillinger 4, lots of fun bands are going to announce more people. So um, if I can share a promotion, that would be...
0: The Recess romp this summer in Pedro, the the home of uh, Mike Watt.
1: That's right. Oh my god. Uh one of the best shows I saw. I was going down to see Toys That Kill, and their bass player, for whatever reason, couldn't do it. So Mike Watt filled in and they did all Stooges songs, and it was amazing. I mean, God, talk about a legend right there. Oh man. I I, I also just saw uh the Alley Cats down there. That oh, was wow. super fun. Yeah, the they original I mean, Alley Cats. No, uh what's his name steve steve is that the fella the fella was it's a new gal but oh, um it's yeah but the original i believe steve soto am i maybe that's someone else
0: that's the adolescence oh, you're
1: right you're right yeah. um but yeah so so i saw them they're like they have a lot of i forget des from black flag his new band is playing down there coming up like the sardine in in san pedro has been my I love that place so much. It's close enough to LA, but you know, you go down there and no one talks about show business or anything. It's just punk bands. And you know, I'm usually the youngest person there. It's, it's beautiful. I love
0: it. The Sardine. I got to check that out. That sounds awesome.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Come down. Well
0: South Bay scene. I'll definitely uh, hang with you when I'm down there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, please. I, I would love that. Awesome.
0: Are you coming up to Portland anytime soon?
1: Uh, Sometime in August because uh, my old improv group, Whiskey Tango, it's our 10-year anniversary. So we're nice. going to do something. So yeah, summertime. Um, My contract's up for work this summer. So I'll probably come back up to visit.
0: Awesome. Can't wait to see you.
1: Yeah, you too, buddy. It's so good to it's see so you nice. tonight.
0: Yeah. And thank you so much for coming on the pod. I really am yep. stoked to have you.
1: Oh, i'm so excited to be on it it was you're one of the few podcasts i actually listened to
0: all <laughs> right on all right great to see you gabe love you
1: love you too buddy Bye. Bye.
0: Bye.